Hi, and welcome to Zernona Clayton, the podcast. I'm your host, broadcast journalist, and also a family friend, Michelle Miller. And we'll hear from Miss Clayton, or as I like to call her, Biggie. Big or the queen of the town. She is an incredible, wonderful, brilliant woman who for the last 93 years has been an activist, a civil rights visionary, and a broadcast media pioneer. Oh, what a life she's led. I mean, where did this idea for the Trumpet Awards come from? Dr. King said one time that he just didn't come to the conclusion that all white people love to hate. His belief leaned more toward the fact that they just don't know us. They formed opinions on maybe stories they've heard. And so if they really knew who we were, he felt fewer would hate us. The street light, he said, just start there. Who could get around without a traffic light? How many people would know they were designed by a black man? Nobody, perhaps. So he said, if they knew us, they'd end up with respect, and maybe from that you might ultimately get some kind of love. At least we can live together. So I said, you know what, maybe if I did a program that would help inform white America, inform the masses, what we've done, that maybe the knowledge would help blend us. And I used as my first vivid example was this doctor in Chicago who was working on finding a way to save blood because blood used to be the hardest thing to have on the shelves because you couldn't preserve it. My moral of that story was Here's a man who created something not for himself, not for his family, his friends, but anybody who gets sick. And to this very day, you go to the hospital right now, they got some blood. Because a black man made it possible for you to keep it on the shelves. And so story after story after story there's something that I can match what my goal was and meet my goals. And when I was in school, I loved always the trumpet because, as you can see, the trumpet has a glare and it shows strength because it's long and you can't even blow it quietly unless you mute it. You hear it loudly and clearly that somebody is blowing the trumpet. So my message here was, it's loud, it's beautiful. You get the message, and here it is. And Martin Luther King was right, because over time, I got white people who would call me, and I used as just one example, there were several, but one example of was a white woman who called me and said she stumbled upon the Trumpet Awards on her television and found it so interesting because her mother and father taught her that all black people were lazy, that every black man would rather stand on a corner and get a government check 
than to get a paycheck. Every black woman would rather have a baby than have a job. They taught her that. We're working every day and putting in the money, and they're pulling it from us because they're doing nothing. That's what you grew up hearing and learning and accepting as the reason why she hates black people. The program didn't say that. And she went to the libraries, opened her eyes, and opened her world. And she said, I have two little girls. One is two and one is five. I don't want them to grow up in the same ignorance I did. So send me those tapes. I don't care what they cost. I want them to know the truth about black people because you've helped open my eyes. That was time after time after time. Now, we didn't educate everybody, but we did as much to educate black people as we did white people. I was at the service station one day, and you know, we have black men standing at the service station, and when they see a woman, they come to accost her and take a purse and hit her in the head and all that. So I was there, there wasn't nobody then, oh, God, here comes this guy right to my car. Oh, Lord, you know, what am I going to do now? Because there's nobody much around, you know, by myself. Oh, my goodness, what am I going to do? And he said, hey, you can't do that. <laughs> this, this is my car, you know. And I said, oh, God. I was shivering in my boots, you know. <laughs> and he said, um, a woman of your stature can't pump her own gas. <laughs> Not the way you you teaching us something. And he grabbed the hose and started. Now over here in the corner is a thug-looking guy who said, hey, 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 <laughs> <laughs> Oh, no, they're working in tandem. They're both going to get me. And he said, hey, nigga, what are you doing with that woman's car? <laughs> so he said, I'm pumping her gas. He said, well, do you know who she is? <laughs> she said, no, but I just, no, who is she? Tell me. You tell me, who is she? She said, she's the one with that lovely program. That ain't no program. <laughs> That's a history lesson. She t- <laughs> we done learned more history from her than the niggas teach you in school. And so now they're having a trouble about me. Oh, tell you. And of course, I felt relieved, you know, <laughs> that they weren't going to cost me. But, Michelle, I've had hundreds of funny stories that I've got new names, you know, new purpose in life, and I'm the one who made it happen. So I know that the Trumpet Awards has educated millions of people. When I was in New York and I was looking at you, I thought we were in your home. (laughs) This is your office. Yeah. It looks like a home. You have decorated. In our heart it is. When we were in the height of during the Trumpet Awards, I mean, we had people sleeping on this rug. Really? I mean, we had such dedication of people wanting to do this program that in every office I have a sofa so people can sleep in every one of these rooms. And I tell them, they say, you sleep, go lie down. You know, we've got work to do. You can't leave. So go to sleep. And they did. I had dedicated volunteers, but I taught them as we moved along with dedication. You don't have to work here. This is something you choose to do. But once you are in here now, signed up to do this work for the Trumpet Awards, you got to do it my way. I'm, I'm the captain of this ship, and it has to be right. And until you finish, 
you're not ready for bed, you know. And I've helped to grow people's boastful spirit of, yeah, I worked on the Trumpet Awards because I did a good job. I did it right. I did it well. And one of the joys of this program is now is to meet people as I travel. Oh, I was one of your volunteers, and I learned how to do this because of you. Oh, that's a thrill of a lifetime for me. Having dedication surrounding your project, whatever it is, is the joy that's unmatched. Because in the end, we all benefit. And, of course, I earned a title of being the only person they've ever known who fired volunteers. And people today walk with me, did you really fire volunteers? I said, oh, yes. Yeah, well, how you can get rid of people who are giving you their service? I said, I don't want anybody to give me something I can't use. I can't use lateness. If people come late, I said, oh, no, we, don't, we can't use you today. We got somebody else doing your work so you can go. And you botch it up. We had a very prominent woman come in here as our guest. And the boy who was writing the tickets, because we paid for the way to come if we honor them, they lived in upstate New York. The, um, Airport is down in New York. Well, she's got to get up an hour ahead of time to get started on headed toward the airport. And here she was, a seasoned senior lady, getting up at 3.30 in the morning to go to the airport because my guy made a mistake. He had it a.m. instead of p.m. And I got to think about that. Poor old lady got to get up to get ready to leave her house at 3 a.m. to catch a plane to get in. We don't need her till tonight or tomorrow. And so he said, oh, I made a mistake. You sure did. <laughs> and now I'm going to tell you, I'm not making a mistake. I'm getting rid of you because I can't use you. You don't know the difference between a.m. and p.m. You know value to me. I can't proofread everybody's work. If so, I don't need the volunteers. But we had hundreds of volunteers loyal people who came here every day to work on helping put it together because I didn't want one item left unattended, not one. I used to see you, though. If there was something out of place, if there was a napkin out of place, you catch it Mm -hmm. and you glare. It was so funny because, you know, obviously I I would watch you and you if something was off, it was on you. You took personal. See, I don't plan for mistakes I plan for perfection. And if you're going to work with me, you got to work the way I work. I'm never late, so I'm not going to accept your tardiness. You are my equal. No, I wasn't superiority driven, like I'm the boss. Never that. Never. We were a team. You know, you got a part of it, and then you put it all together. And you're proud. that These people I work with ended up being proud. They act like they owned it. You know, they felt the ownership of this project because it came out of it. And I wouldn't absolutely have tolerated a profanity, never, ever, because I invited young people here, children. I just said, you can talk without using profanity. And I won't call the performer's name, but a very popular performer was honored one night. And he got up there and used profanity, and I yanked him off the stage. Really? Yes, yes. But when the show was over, he came upstairs to my suite and cried like a baby, brought his wife with him, and they both cried. Said his people didn't prepare him, but he looked out in the audience and saw Mrs. Martin Luther King and Ted Turner, people who were Christian folk leadership people, 
He said his people didn't give him the right information, and he cried like a baby with apology. And we became real good friends now. Mm-hmm. Have you had any failures, any big mistakes in your life? No. No. That's unusual. I've had some down moments, like you know, my first husband was young and successful and all that, and so to have him die at a young age was a shock. And my sister's illness was a downer. So I've had some down moments. You never made a big mistake. You never, none of that. I mean, I because I have to tell you, I made some doozies. And I've learned from every one of them in the sense that it got me to the big success. And so I, you know, I kind of believe that the successful people have had moments of failure and they've made mistakes along the way and they've learned from those. And I talk about my mistakes. I talk about my failures because I think that a lot of people who look at us and they see all the success, they're like, how could I possibly? Because my life has never been a straight line up. It's always been like two steps forward, three steps back, a step to the side. And I'm just curious because I don't know of any mistakes you've ever made. I don't know of any failures. Your life has been a succession in my eyes, as most people's who are successful, that's all we see is the success. But I'm just throwing some spaghetti on the wall to see if there was a point in time where you just said, oh, Lord, how am I going to make it back from this? Why did I do that? Why did I step over here and didn't step over here? Well, to say I haven't had Mistakes would be an untruth. But I call them different things. I've had some disappointments because when I'm forging ahead, I'm I'm thinking, I, I don't have evil in my heart. And so to find someone who's out to do me in is disappointing to me because I come out of left field and not, I didn't see the ugly side of this person. So you trusted instance, people... It's people you trusted that you shouldn't have, yeah. those kinds of yeah. things. Yeah, I've had some of those. And one of the, my, my first real, real disappointment was when I was in college. I think I mentioned to you at one point that, you know, Little and I ran for Miss Tennessee State. And that competition uh, did something to me. For instance, I was known as Miss Goody Two-Shoes, they used to call me, and Little was the one who just wanted every experience. Little was daring and forging ahead. And I'm always, oh, little, don't do that. Oh, little, don't do that. But one thing that our school, Tennessee State, didn't allow was if you're pregnant, you got to get out of school. You got to leave. So the way to really kill us off was to say the good girl is the one now who's pregnant, but she's hiding it. And the committee took the charge and said, I'd have to go to Meharry, the medical school. That's where we go when you get real sick. And get a disclaimer. Now, to this day, as I'm telling the story, it hurts me. Because I had to take my clothes off, and they had to do a test. And I know I'm not pregnant. But nobody believes me. They can't just take my word. They got to prove. And they had to fill out a report that says she's not pregnant. 
I didn't even know how you get pregnant at that point in my life. And I wouldn't let a boy touch me, my gosh, you know. And so when it came from our competitors who were, you know, running against us, that's where the report came from, we found out later. Well, that hurt me to my heart. And I was disappointed that a group would go that far to try to win the campaign victory, to name me as the one now who's violated the rules. That hurt so deeply. They lied. It was a dis. Yeah, they did, but it was a disappointment. Did it teach you a lesson? What was the lesson of that? Well, it started a trend because after that, you, you get a lot of those kind of moments in your life. Not maybe as severe as that, but people make up stories about you. Like I'm going somebody. Like I heard, I was one of Ted Turner's girls. You know, <laughs> or one of his women. So, as I got older then those stories that people did talk about me. You know, there was always something. I was going with Martin Luther King, and I'm one of his women. And that hurts, but you know it's not true. But this man is famous, and they'll try to get anything to discredit him. And so you're a good target. And so you learn to rationalize on what people make up. So I dealt with the things that were ugly to me in those earlier years. I got mad and disappointed. But that's as far as I've gone. I hear this story all the time from friends of mine who tell me they got their start at the National, through the National Urban League or uh-huh. the Urban League of uh-huh. whatever city they were from. Uh-huh. And then I, I'm involved with the Urban League. You got your start with the Urban League? Oh, heck yes. Heck yes. I knew, though, when I was in college, when this particular night, four of us, our man, Little, and our boyfriends, had gone to an event, and on, on the way home, back to the dormitory, we were hungry, so we saw a hamburger place, and said, oh, here's one, let's stop here. And so we had had a good evening, the evening was over, now we're getting ready to go home, you know, go, go to bed. We got out and went in the hamburger place, money in our pockets, and said we want hamburgers. And that guy had a knife so long, looked like a sledgehammer. And he said, if you niggas don't get out of here, I will take this knife and cut all of your heads off. You know you don't belong here. You know you don't belong here. Well, we, we didn't know we didn't belong there. And scared to death, and we left. I decided that night that that's never, ever, ever going to be a thing that I accept that I don't belong here. And I said... Well, I thought the Constitution said we did. And I started questioning it and deciding that, oh, this will never happen to me again. You know, I'm going to spend the rest of my life proving I do have a right to be here. And so as painful as that night was, it was a dedication that I had appointed to myself. Later on, I did experience denial. I did something about it. So I've spent now those years doing just the opposite of what that man said, you know you don't belong here. Well, now I know I do, and I exercise my right. I don't break into some place I don't belong, but I walk in with pride in any place I do belong. When I moved to Chicago, I didn't know what I could do about it because I was a student, so there wasn't much I could do. My favorite store, Marshall Field, was a biased institution. I didn't know it because 
I grew up saying, one of these days, I'm going to shop in Marshall Fields. You know, it was my dream place. And now Marshall Field was kind to patrons, and so they never turned anybody out. But they never hired anybody. So they would welcome black people and treat you courteously when you entered the store, but nobody was hired there. And I said to the Urban League, can I, you know, chair a committee here of trying to find out how we can get them to change that policy? And they gave me the rights to do it. And what I did was very simple. I looked in the paper every day to see who's hiring. Well, Marshall Field had clerk typists available. I was a good typist, and I was a good speller. And so you call and said, you know, I see you've got an ad in the paper. Is it open? Yes. Okay, I'm going to come and apply. Get over there and apply. I never was more than 10 minutes away. In 10 minutes, I show up and said, I'm responding to the ad. I'm so sorry. Very kindly, personality-wise, uh, oh, I'm so sorry, we just filled that position. And then they shunt you off. Well, you come back again. And then you prove it's still open, <laughs> you know. And you know then you caught them. Then we proved that this was just all folly. They didn't plan to hire anybody. But they were kind to black customers. And then we put on the drive. Now, just don't hit Marshall Fields. We found out that the pattern was the same in Spiegel. That was a big store downtown. Montgomery Wards was a big store downtown. And black people patronized all those stores, all the downtown stores we ended up hitting from the Urban League standpoint and uh, questioning why they didn't hire blacks. And the shame got too strong for them. And some of them just voluntarily changed. And, oh, man, what a great day that was. Thank you for joining us for our special podcast series with the incomparable Zernona Clayton. If you enjoyed today's conversation with Big, we hope you'll come back next time for more insider stories and reflections from one of the first ladies of the civil rights movement. Subscribing makes it easy. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or your favorite podcast platform. And please, please be sure to rate and review us to help others find the show. This has been Zernona Clayton, the podcast, a production of Boom Integrated and DA Brand Activation Group. Our podcast is executive produced by Naima Rashad, Dennis Adamovich, Adrian Glover, and Robin Lai, with post-production by Boom. I'm Michelle Miller, your host. Thanks so much for listening. And don't miss the documentary, Zenona Clayton, A Life in Black and White, available anytime on Brown Sugar, Bounce TV's subscription video on demand service. Download the Brown Sugar app today on your phone, PC, or smart TV. Go to brownsugar.com for more information.